Welcome to Energy Radio. This is episode 38, and today I'm joined by Grant Strem, the chairman of Proton Energy. Grant, welcome to Energy Radio today. Thanks for having me, Matt. Good. Pleasure to uh, to meet and, and to chat. And um, for my benefit, as we're meeting for the first time, and for our listeners, can you give us your your background, your origin story? How did you come to be uh, here uh, today uh, chatting about uh, about Proton and about hydrogen and who knows what else we'll talk about? <laughs> well, that's a big and open-ended question, but I guess I'll try and boil it down to a few salient things. My background is within the energy sector, specifically upstream oil and gas within Canada. Uh, I'm a prof- professional geologist and uh, I've always found that, uh, you know, improvements that can be made should be made. I think I had a, a physics-heavy uh, electrical engineer father who uh, intrigued me with science and progress. And uh, this was an, a concept that about five years ago, one of my friends, Dr. Ian Gates, and I came up with over breakfast. And in, in, in the heart of it, it's a fairly simple concept. Uh, which is to produce very low-cost, clean hydrogen from oil fields without any emissions. So that's what we've been uh, building our business towards and, and chasing uh, ever since, including a demonstration in Saskatchewan at moderate scale. And we're hopeful that we'll be able to get a larger-scale demonstration done, roughly 500 tons a day hydrogen. And our anticipated cost is... Uh, production cost is quite a bit lower than even the cost of natural gas, which allows us to move towards baseload power and industrial heating and many segments of of our energy economy that so far have not been, let's say, easy to uh, wrap our heads around how to decarbonize. Very cool. So let's let's kind of unpack a couple of those things um, before we do it. A deep dive on, on the, the, the the technology and, and how it all works. Um, so so you you spend the early part of your uh, career uh, in in oil and gas pulling pulling hydrocarbons out of the ground primarily. Mostly exploration. So okay, I'd say probably ninety eight percent of geologists work on how to extract it. You know, drill the same well a hundred times, and I was much more attracted to trying to drill a new type of clay or a new type of well, so more on the exploration side. But essentially, yes, I was upstream oil and gas. So you have this, I sense in you this this sense of kind of never settled, kind of always looking for, you know, a, a better way to do things or a, a better business model, or is that kind of make up part, partly in your DNA? Yeah, I'd, I'd very much say so. Um, if, if there's a better way, I'm certainly not stuck to what the what we're currently doing. I, I'd much rather move towards what's better. And that could be something simple like a tump, type of pump or valve that we have in the field. Or it could be something more profound like a, a different product or process or additional revenue stream. Cool. So so you mentioned, I mean, I think all, all good ideas either happen over breakfast or beer. Uh, so you mentioned this. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned this uh, this infamous breakfast meeting. Talk to us a little bit more about you know what what was surrounding that, what led you to that, who this other person is. Talk to us a bit about kind of the creation story of of what your technology is. Sure, I guess it's about fifteen years ago now. I did a master's degree 
with several engineering courses in, required. And three of them were from this funny, eccentric professor, Dr. Ian Gates. And he and I stayed friends over the years and would often meet for breakfast or beers and, uh, you know, just kind of talk about technological potentialities. And then one morning, uh, five years ago now, we had this simple recognition that, wow, uh, there's an old pilot here with a lot of hydrogen in the production from, it was a 1983 Canadian uh, oxygen injection project that showed remarkably high concentrations of hydrogen. And then we did a little more data search, but at the heart of it, it was the recognition that hydrogen and carbon, that's what hydrocarbons are. And every oil field or gas field also has H2O, like water. So it's a very hydrogen rich, energy rich um, pressure vessel just sitting there. Right. And there has been um, examples where the hydrogen has been produced out of it accidentally. All these air injection or oxygen injection projects were always aiming to try to increase the number of barrels produced and actually ideally minimize the amount of hydrogen in the byproduct stream. But with a, the global movement towards decarbonization, I think that, uh, you know, if anything, like I'm not against oil and gas. Everybody likes plastic and asphalt and rubber in their shoes. But uh, to simply burn this stuff is getting more and more problematic, both economically and environmentally. So hydrogen does fill a key niche. And to be able to make it at low cost without emissions, that's, that's something that I think is a, a, a necessary breakthrough. It might not be the final solution, perhaps fusion power or other things will eclipse this. But from a cost perspective, for a, I think a very long time, this process will be predominant. Cool, cool. And, and, and I loved something you said there almost in passing, but this reference that, you know, hydrocarbons is more than just, you know, putting cars on the road and, and you know, it, it's, it's in everything we do. And so it is, it is part of our reality. And I think that sometimes gets lost in the conversation. So we have this reality of, you know, hydrocarbons uh, will be with us for, for a long time, but how can we how can we move the discussion and the technology and society and the environment uh, forward? So do I understand correctly, Grant, that you're through your, you know, your master's and through your, you know, relationship with Dr. Gates, you're kind of making sense of all of this work that had happened, albeit maybe from with other motives or other kind of goals. And you're saying, Hey, there, there's a, there's a thread in there uh, of a, of a technology opportunity that, you know, given what is swirling around in today's uh, today's climate, um, there, there's something here that that you know this, the world needs in terms of hydrogen extraction. Is that it? It's it's old work that you're kind of making new again and 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 redirecting the focus. Is that what it was? Yeah, it's basically the combination of two old technologies. There's been more than 500 air injection or oxygen injection projects, and they all produced hydrogen. And then one, my simple <laughs> thought was, well, if there was a downhole filter that you could, that would only allow hydrogen to pass through, then you could produce pure hydrogen to the surface and leave everything else down there. Mm. And Ian said, you know, I think such a thing exists. Let me do a little digging. And next thing you know, sure enough, there's a 85-year-old technology that's been used in the steam methane reforming industry. And it's basically, there are actually a few different ways to um, filter out pure hydrogen from a mixed gas stream. 
And uh, at least one of them is fairly simple to uh, install within downhole within a, a wellbore. So it's kind of the combination of these two old, uh, well, well-known uh, processes with industrial heritage that have allowed us to, uh, well, come up with this new process. So talk to us about, well, let's get to it now. Let's get to the, the meat and the potatoes of, of your technology. I think you have kind of a, a patent and a name for it. And just walk us through in simple terms, uh, how, how does it work? The basic process is elevate the reservoir temperature of an oil field uh, until it starts to generate hydrogen. The lowest cost way to achieve this is to inject oxygen. And if you inject air, it's eventually uh, not going to be a emissions-free process, but if you inject pure oxygen, it can be. And the reason for that is nitrogen does not participate very much in chemical reactions, but CO2 will. It forms carbonic acid, it goes into uh, solid state as carbonates precipitating throughout the reservoir. And uh, basically, it, it deals with itself in, in large degree in terms of mass balance and things like that. Um, so step one is build a big oxygen plant near an old, ideally, mostly uneconomic oil field. So the world is full of half full oil fields that have reached their economic limits. Mm. So inject oxygen into that, uh, stimulate these reactions. Um, first, it's partial oxidation and oxidation, gasification reactions, and most especially water gas shift give you a significant amount of hydrogen blooming within the reservoir. And then at the top of the reservoir, the gas is, uh, gas is buoyant, of course, so the, the gases go up to the top and you have a downhole hydrogen filter installed near the high point of the reservoir. So in that way, you can have a significant um, production of hydrogen from a new hydrogen production well within an old oil field that used to be somebody else's abandonment liability. Mm. So it's repurposing existing infrastructure in this new clean energy vector and taking advantage of harvesting this enormous amount of energy that's left behind. So you come to a well, pretend I'm somebody from... Eastern Canada, not as familiar with oil and gas, just pretend <laughs> shouldn't be that hard. But um, so, so you come to this well, it's, it's half used. It, it's gotten to the point where it's going to cost more uh, to pull it out than to make money on, on the, the crude or whatever's, whatever's down there. So instead you come with your technology and you put, you put a plant to, to make oxygen and then you inject the oxygen. And, and you, you mentioned the key is elevating temperature. Is it the oxygen downhole that reacts chemically and that creates the, the elevation in temperature? Yes. So if you think about a car engine or a turbine or a furnace in someone's house, hydrocarbons are simply oxidized in those systems. And the amount of energy and heat that is released as a result, it, we use it for all, all these industrial purposes or transportation or various things. We, we basically do start with those oxidation reactions, only instead of bringing the fuel to the surface, processing it, transporting it, this big, long, complicated, um, expensive uh, you know, processing chain, we just take oxygen out of the atmosphere right where the oil field is and you know, inject that to the fuel. So you take the oxygen to the fuel instead of the fuel to the oxygen. Uh-huh. 
Okay. And so then as the temperature is elevated uh, and as you achieve some kind of steady state, then it's, it's that elevated temperature that causes the hydrogen to get thrown off. Walk us through that part of the cycle. Yes, you, you get an elevated temperature. Uh, there's a well-known uh, chemical reaction series. It's actually much more complicated, but the main, the main ones are partial oxidation and oxidation, where you have hydrocarbon plus oxygen gives you H2O, water, and some carbon monoxide or CO2. There's also these gasification reactions that happen, and they, they tend to be more common in a fuel-rich combustion mixture. So you end up with uh, a lot of carbon monoxide and actually the release of some hydrogen through these gasification reactions. The carbon monoxide fuels a very important equilibrium reaction called water-gas shift, where carbon monoxide plus water, the steam that's floating around down there now, gives you hydrogen plus CO2. So if you can constantly be extracting the hydrogen from the reaction, reactant side of the, that equation, and the CO2 is dissolving in bottom water and disappearing here and there in the reservoir, the more hydrogen you pull out of the system, the more hydrogen the system gives you because it is a, a very easy equilibrium reaction. Okay. So, so the, the oxygen is, is, is starting the process, and then you have this, this almost chain reaction of, of chemical reactions. And, and really, are you then creating a means by which the byproducts of that reaction can escape and your filter is making sure that only hydrogen is escaping? Yes, only hydrogen is pulled to surface from the system okay. through this hydrogen filter that goes down hole in the well. And then uh, the carbon dioxide uh, becomes carbonic acid and carbonate rock in various points within the whole system. Okay, so in, in very simple terms, all the, the bad stuff that we're all worried about today, that stays downhole and you're able to pull just the hydrogen out. Exactly. Okay. In that way, it's an emissions-free process. Right. And you can power your oxygen plant with a portion of the hydrogen. So in that way, it can be an energy island that just basically creates a bunch of hydrogen for export by pipeline or power line. Wow. And uh, the energy balance is such that you still have, even if you're powering the oxygen plant, you still have plenty of hydrogen left over to, to sell in, in some shape or form. Exactly. And so this whole debate about uh, is there, should we be using hydrogen fuel cell vehicles or electric vehicles? What do we transition to? I, I applaud both and I'm happy to supply electrons from hydrogen upstream in the power lines, clean energy or directly uh, as hydrogen into people's fuel tanks. So you're, 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 uh, you're quite fine for the market to sort out, sort out that debate and all they need to do is call you when they're ready for, for some fuel, whether it be electrons or hydrogen. Indeed. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so talk to us about, so you've given us kind of the Coles notes of um, you know, the process and uh, appreciate the way you're able to uh, simplify it for folks who aren't living and breathing it. Um, so talk to us now in terms of where are you at in, in, in your development of, of either projects or the technology, you know, how close are you? Are you at commercialization? Kind of where are you at in the life cycle of really the business? We're currently constructing our first hydrogen truck loading demo. It'll be a fairly small scale, just a few tons a day of hydrogen production. And we'll also be selling electricity 
to SaaS power in March from our demo site. Wow. To scale up beyond that, we'll need to uh, build a, well, we intend to build a large oxygen plant. Um, however, I think that we basically, well, we sold a license to a, a group in Australia who is likely to build their oxygen plants even faster than we get to it in Canada. Mm. Uh, they're a large wind and solar company that's trying to offset their intermittency challenge and believe this will be much cheaper than Tesla mega packs and things like that. Wow. So, um, it, yeah, it's an interesting thing. I, I hope to see this technology proliferate very quickly because it'll save all of society on energy costs and, of course, uh, help us with our emissions problem. So, yeah, so many places to go there. Just to pick up on that storage thing for a minute, I mean, is, is the reaction such that you can kind of, you can throttle it up and down or, or is it you gotta, you make it, you gotta deal with it and the storage, the storage happens above ground. Like does the storage happen downhole by throttling the, the reaction or does it have it above ground in, in some kind of mechanical storage? It'll be some of both. So hydrogen is a fairly reactive chemical and so you'll get partial upgrading of the remaining hydrocarbons in the reservoir until you reach some sort of local end member state, which is just hydrogen. But uh, yeah, hydrogen, you don't want it hanging around too long. If, you're, if you are injecting oxygen, I, I, we expect to see the best results from a cyclic injection process where uh, the oxygen plant will run all the time, but individual oxygen injectors might be on and off, on and off, and in that way, the oxygen that you inject is not reacting with portions of the hydrogen that you're creating. Right. Uh, otherwise, you're just making your own water. Right. 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 So, yeah. So that that will be one of the things that we optimize as we go. Um, in general, it's best to take it to the surface and use it the to make electricity or. Uh, in the case of our demo site, there's a very thick salt below, so we'll probably wash out a salt cavern that we can store a significant amount of pure hydrogen or, or almost pure hydrogen in and just pull it to the surface as needed so it'll have a sort of a, a large reservoir, um, not just in the oil field, but in the salt uh, storage below. Okay, okay, wow. Um, so you mentioned licensing it, like do you have a a business model where you're, are you going to develop your own projects? Are you, you know, going to light, like what's your, how do you get this? Well, let me step back a minute. I mean, this sounds like it's, it's maybe not the only silver bullet, but it sounds, you know, like, Hey, you're onto something massive here. I mean, how do you get this out and, and, and adopt it as widely as, as, um, as possible? Well, I, I do intend to leave the door open for license deals. Um, you know, it, the more people who are trying to develop this and progress it, the better it is for everybody. Um, so that is one of the paths. I thought we would have faster uptake on that. And then when I think about economies of scale, if I know I'm going to build one or 2,000 very, very large oxygen plants, the cost per plant goes down if they're not all designed to build as a one-off uh, to fit a custom need. So if in-house we end up coming up with lower and lower cost, large-scale air separation units. Um, I think there is an efficiency to be gained by trying to do it under one umbrella. Mm. So likely that's uh, part of it. In the early days, uh, it'll probably be, well, it will be a variety of, of uh, early license 
uh, people who have signed up. Right. Our intention was to just go that route and then escalate the the license fee and royalty through time where the early adopters, it's basically free for them mm. because they help us establish our technology and then the latecomers pay more and more. But it's hard to find those early adopters. So uh, we've gone more towards the concept of, well, let's just start building oxygen plants ourselves and try it from there. Uh, we, we, yeah, I think we will get leapfrogged by this large wind and solar company in Australia, but uh, I'm happy about that too. Cool, cool. And uh, so, so let's talk a little bit about the, the back-end hydrogen infrastructure. So you're, you're really, you're looking for wells that have kind of passed their, you know, useful life, but still have hydrocarbons down there. And that's where you're going as a target. You know, you have, you have these uh, oxygen plants that you can deploy there. But what do you see as, you know, is, is infrastructure to pull the hydrogen away either in, uh, in its form as hydrogen or as electricity, like have you, where, where are you at with you know finding the the infrastructure that's most efficient to to using getting getting the hydrogen to a place where you can use it? Yeah, by far existing infrastructure is what we're targeting. Okay. So you can go up to about ten percent hydrogen or or more within natural gas pipelines. Uh, above about twenty five percent, people's residential appliances start to have difficulties. Right. Unless they're, you know, customized for it. Um, so that's, you know, 10 plus percent of the natural gas market is meaningfully large already. And then the electricity market, it's one where we can step in and most, for example, most coal, coal fired power plants just have a boiler with a separate steam loop. And you can burn just about any fuel in those, um, those boilers, including hydrogen. So you have this huge grid connected <laughs> steam turbine with a transformer already in place, all the regulations or approvals already there. So to just repurpose it to burn hydrogen instead of coal is uh, relatively trivial compared to uh, a brand new system. We can do, of course, there are many large utility scale commercially available hydrogen turbines, but uh, I think the low hanging fruit is just grab all the stuff that already exists and use that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I love that notion of, so So there's, there's a bunch of elements, I think, of your approach here that, you know, yes, we're creating a, a renewable fuel here, but also, you know, the way you're deploying it, you're, you're reusing somebody else's liability in terms of an abandoned uh, or some kind of well that's no longer being used, but also you're, you're leveraging existing natural gas infrastructure and potentially existing, uh, albeit potentially uh, decommissioned or soon to be decommissioned power generating infrastructure. So at, at every kind of link in your chain, you're looking, you have an opportunity to repurpose what was once kind of uh, assets that were on their way out, right? Like that's a big upside for what you guys are doing, is it not? Yeah. Yeah, it is. And it's not just that, you know, if there is a, an old oil field, that old oil field is probably close to uh, power lines, refineries. It has some sort of, uh, you know, let's say proximity or relationship to that. But it also has the roads already built. It already has the town nearby full of workers who want to either retain or get their job in clean energy and transition to the future. It, usually there's already some sort of framework in terms of regulatory for 
for this so you're not you know chopping apart a big part of the desert or the forest to put in a bunch of solar panels and wind farms it's not a brand new infrastructure that you're running power lines to it's already all there so environmentally and and economically it's leveraging uh, what's already in existence and is there any you're doing something different to an existing uh, well or resource in the ground um, is there a challenge to get permitting to do what you're doing under the ground? Generally not. If you're in a district where oil and gas has been a historic part of the, the past, it's uh, there will be some sort of a framework. And jurists are eager to maintain market strategy, and so I'm not anticipating uh, well, any pushback. So far, all we're getting is <laughs> invitations. So yeah, yeah, I can yeah. I can see that. So let's um, and does that? So you're in Saskatchewan now. You're you're based in Calgary. I mean, I know in Western Ontario, there's there's you know what there was a lot of oil infrastructure and a lot of you know crude coming out of the ground. Um, is that are those wells totally or is that an option as well or too small of a market for you? No, I, you know, it's something I haven't explored. We're kind of going one step at a time, and there's a lot of interest from otherwhere, uh, elsewhere. But I know that at the turn of 1899 to 1900, mm-hmm. Ontario was producing one, one million barrels a day of oil. Wow. And there are very significant, well, Petrolia, that's, you know, where Canada's oil field, oil patch actually got its start. Right. So um, there's a lot of old uh, legacy oil fields and infrastructure um, in that in Ontario that could definitely be um, evaluated for clean energy production at low cost and large scale. So Grant, let's talk kind of uh, let's talk, talk Turkey now for a minute. You mentioned it early on in passing, but I mean how, how does how do the economics work on this, right? So we have a framework in most of Canada where we have still you know reasonably cheap, commodity prices for electricity we have you know all-time lows on you know natural gas pricing um, and then at the same time we have this drive to a cleaner uh, fuel system uh, so, so where do you guys fit in in that uh, dynamic well to give you a relative sense <laughs> let's say the future is bright uh, in April 1st 2022 the carbon tax on natural gas, according to the federal government website, will work out to $2.63 a gigajoule just on the carbon tax. So that does not include production of natural gas and the transportation to get it to wherever it's used in a turbine, for example. If you can, um, we, we think we can basically get to a cost below $1 per gigajoule for our production cost at full scale. Wow. So if we can achieve that, um, you know, that is cheaper than everything else. And the reason that it's, we think we can do that, it primarily comes down to uh, high temperature hydrogen uh, reactions, which is how 95% of hydrogen is made worldwide today. Canada does about 8,000 tons a day of hydrogen to supply industrial demand, mostly upgrading fuels and creating fertilizer. And what they do is they build these facilities for these high te- high temperature reactions. So you have pressure vessels, and you're always buying natural gas to fuel it, right. and and then 
presumably at some point people will start capturing the smokestack emissions to inject uh, the CO2 into the ground. All of that adds uh, significant capital and operating expense. We simply um, find an old, some conveniently depressurized large uh, oil field and use that as our reaction vessel. So it's sealed because that's why there's an oil field there. Um, it's already sh shown for millions and millions of years that it's trapped hydrocarbons. So we use that as our pressure vessel and it's preloaded with fuel for 50 or 100 or 200 years. So it's uh, the cost structure on that. And, we, and of course, if we never bring the carbon to surface, we don't have to capture and re-inject it. We can just, you know, have the benefit of the cost savings for basically every aspect of that. So, so are you basically putting a steam methane reformer in the ground? Yes, only the fuel is unswept oil. Right. And yeah, and there's no emissions coming out. Wow, wow. So with, with this price point at, you know, full deployment or, uh, you know, full capacity, realizing that any new technology is, is contingent on kind of economies of scale, um, how do you how do you envision getting it to market at those rates? Is it are you kind of signing um, you know an agreement with an end purchaser and then you're paying the gas utilities to move it through, or do you see the gas utilities buying it direct, or how do you see that market developing? Most gas utilities and people who are burning a lot of hydrocarbons are looking for ways to decarbonize their fuel, whether that and it's usually a partial step. So whether they want to go 5% or 10% or, or more or less, um, they might say, we will promise to purchase hydrogen at this location for the same price that we pay for natural gas. Mm. So um, I'm trying to basically, we just started having a bunch of conversations with gas utilities and power producers around promise to purchase contracts. So if I have a few billion dollars in future revenue lined up, in promise to purchase contracts, which are just standard um, investment and swap dealers association contracts with a gas annex. Right. Uh, then we can basically go to, um, well, whoever wants to fund our oxygen plant and say, look, all we need is X amount to unlock this multi-billion dollar revenue stream from this large utility counterparty who has great credit. And then presumably some funder will say, Cool. Here you go. <laughs> so that's uh, okay. I want to get a bunch of these going simultaneously in Canada as our next step. Okay. And so I'll come back to something I asked earlier. Now that I understand it a bit more, but I mean, you see, so you have this technology or this concept. You're proving it out. You have a price point that you know is pretty attractive. I mean, it sounds almost too good to be true, Grant. Like, what what is your What's your main barrier right now to move this uh, forward into the market? What's one or two main barriers that you're facing? Is it just just you can't move fast enough? Is that it? Or like what are some of the barriers you're facing? Uh, it's mainly cash. So if I, could, if I could go build an oxygen plant, initiate it tomorrow. We have a Stantec design on what, what we want to build. And I just need to fund, uh, you know, sort of the first large-scale iteration of that. So... Wow, cool. Um, yeah, I think that's the barrier. Everybody wants clean energy and, and low-cost energy, so there's no political barrier. It sounds like, um, you know, we get um, positive sentiment from 
uh, Western provincial governments uh, and also from you know the federal government. So it seems people of all political stripes are environmentalists at heart. Yeah. They want to save money on energy and they want to do it cleaner. Yeah. Yeah. No. And that's, you know, that's why I kind of frame that question of, you know, it's, it feels too good to be true because not only is it cleaner, it's cheaper too. And, and we've been through this last, you know, 10 or 15 or 20 years of, Hey, we can go cleaner, but it's going to cost you. Right. And so uh, we've, we, I think we've been conditioned perhaps as a society to say, um, you know, we can go cleaner, but it's going to cost us more money. Right. And, uh, and it sounds like, you know, you're providing an op an alternative to that to say, no, no, um, this is something that is cleaner and, um, and, and, and should save you money. So very, very yeah. And I, you know, I think you said that well, and we also, I guess when, when I look at our resource, uh, as Canada, we have uh, just an unbelievable potential for this process because of what we've just been naturally provided with by the geology, whether it's in, the Sarnia area, the Fort McMurray area, even offshore East Coast, you know, from coast to coast, <laughs> we've got unbelievable resources, actually coast to coast to coast, even northern. So if we wanted to be a, a clean energy, hydrogen exporting superpower, yeah, you know, the chance is now. And I think, well, that is our goal as Proton Canada. And I expect we'll probably have a good... Um, you know, a straightforward path uh, once we find sufficient funding to start building in that direction. Very cool. Yeah. And uh, that would be awesome if we could continue to be a, an energy exporter, but do it um, with a much cleaner uh, approach. Would this grant, would this be called, uh, we always, when we talk about hydrogen, we talk about green, blue, or gray hydrogen. What do you call this? Well, I call mine green. Uh, you know, it basically comes down to, are there emissions? If, if, if yes, call it blue or gray or black or something. If there's no emissions, people seem to be calling it green. So if a garbage gasification plant in California can call itself green hydrogen, then I'm pretty sure we can too. But, you know, I don't really mind uh, whatever color people want to paint us with. Right. Um, it basically comes down to what are the emissions? And if we don't have emissions, that's what matters. Very, very cool. So what do the next uh, six to 12 months look like uh, for you and for Proton? Uh, hopefully sign a whole bunch of these promise to purchase contracts, line up a few billion dollars and get a whole bunch of people to work. Cool. And, and, and can you take people to like, can you, if you and I didn't have COVID restrictions, could we go to Saskatchewan and see this in act? Yeah. I, we've been giving lots of tours. <laughs> it's uh you know, from places that are potentially, uh, well, unexpected, uh, there is there's a lot of worldwide interest in this process and people have been coming out for uh, tours and, and there's a lot of excitement about the potential of this. Very, very cool. What, uh, Grant, is there anything else we haven't, um, haven't discussed about the technology or the hydrogen market or anything we've missed in our time together here this morning? I think it, just as a general comment for the hydrogen market, um, everybody seems focused on transportation fuel as the low-hanging fruit to try and change that over. I do think that is something we need to work on, uh, but there's, it can't really be um, baseload power unless the cost is appropriate. 
It, the reason that I think the focus is on transportation fuel is, well, there's two reasons. One is tailpipe emissions in cities kill many, many people. Right. But uh, it's also diesel and gasoline and jet fuel are extremely expensive compared to hydrogen created through various ways. So the cost of production of hydrogen from, let's say, solar to electrolysis, isn't, you know, things like that are now clearly less expensive than diesel and gasoline. So that transition is underway, no matter what a politician says about it. Right. But to get the uh, cost structure even lower uh, and decarbonize and use the existing baseload power infrastructure, uh, you need technologies like ours that have the potential to get meaningfully cheaper than natural gas. So, um, <laughs> and that can happen very, very quickly at large scale, whereas the infrastructure to replace our entire fleet of vehicles and fueling stations is necessarily um, going to take longer. I think demand will drive that when people realize they can fill up their pickup truck for $10 or something instead of $100. Yes. Um, that's, you know, that demand will, uh, well, those fueling stations are gonna start popping up all over the place. But to do baseload power, that's where you can have the biggest, quickest impact uh, overall to the whole sector. And the surplus, you know, if you take a few, if you have a project that's making a few hundred tons a day of hydrogen and divert a few tons a day towards transportation fuel for that local market, um, that's how you get people started. And I think it's um, a better concept to think very large scale and existing infrastructure as the primary goal and focus and then subsequent to that transportation fuel. Well, and what I love about, you know, your approach to, to targeting, you know, large scale power via blending hydrogen in with the natural gas infrastructure is it also allows for tackling uh, areas where natural gas is consumed for uh, thermal processes, right? So, so we live in a cold country, right? And so there's, there's always going to be heating. we, we want those plastics. We want that rubber that consumes power, but it also consumes a lot of thermal energy, right? And so, if we can get the hydrogen into the market, we really start to decarbonize, you know, big chunks of our, you know, emissions profile. So, um, yeah, thank you for walking us through kind of how those relative dynamics work. That's uh, that's very it's very helpful for me, and I, I hope for our listeners too. Um, that's my pleasure, Matt. Yeah, yeah. So, Grant, uh, if if individuals want to get a hold of you, what's the best uh, way to find you? Are you on LinkedIn? Are you got a website? Or what's the best way to find you? Yeah, yeah. We have www.proton.energy, and people who are have inquiries about anything can email info at proton.energy. Very, very cool. Well, Grant, thank you again. Uh, you're clearly onto something. That was a, a meaningful breakfast that you had. Um, and uh, <laughs> I think the world is going to be a, a better place as a result of, of that breakfast. So thank you very much, Grant. Thanks for having me, Matt. Yeah, thank you. And, and to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. This has been episode 38 uh, of Energy Radio with uh, Grant Strem from Proton Energy. On behalf of everyone here at CEM, I'd like to thank Grant and I'd like to thank Lisa Barber, our executive producer, and Mark Charbonneau, our man behind the glass. My name is Matt Lensink, and we will talk again soon about energy. Take care. <laughs>